Matt, haven't we walked far enough? Almost. What are we doing out here? It's not much further. I mean, you piled me into the car. Drive me to the middle of nowhere. We've been walking for hours. I'm starting to think you're going to hand me a shovel and tell me to start digging. Well, this podcast today is about nature. I'm just trying to make it a little more... a little more natural. Uh... Lucas, what are you doing? I'm getting my naturist on. Or off, as it were. Uh... Well, how about we keep our pants on and perhaps just talk about whether care for the environment is an important theological issue for Christianity. Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether you've heard us on the grapevine... You found us somewhere over a rainbow, or maybe we just came in like a wrecking ball. This is the Beyond Ring Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. You're with Matt and Lucas, and this is Episode 5, Beyond Beings, and we're looking at eco-theology. That is what our faith calls us to in relation to the environment. Is there anything intrinsic to faith which compels a more collaborative approach towards a more sustainable planet? I wonder if, in fact, the teachings of our churches and our unsophisticated reading of Scripture has at times hampered our ability to address these issues. Perhaps it stems from a theology of God being completely in control, like the watchmaker in the sky, who could right any wrong at any time, and therefore maybe this denies us having to take responsibility Maybe we feel instead that God could turn down the thermostat at any point. Maybe a necessary starting point is for us to acknowledge and release ourselves from our sense of individual entitlement. We tend to think of this earth as belonging to us, not the other way around. There's a wonderful Native American quote that says this, Treat the earth well. It was not given to you by your parents. It was loaned to you. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Let's just say, just purely hypothetically, of course, I know it's, it's completely ridiculous, but what if we had only one planet, just one, one planet to live on, one planet to eat and breathe from, one planet to make our day upon, make our way upon, make our cities upon, sink our teeth into one ocean, one sky, one people, one life, one time that we can make this right. We miss the point on so many things. The real stuff gets lost in the wrapping, the heart of the matter drowned in an ocean of argument. The earth 
chokes and we bicker about the smoke and the science and the wind and whose fault it could never be forget she lies grasping for clean air we argue the science forgetting the math that the earth is a birthday cake and if there are ten people at the party yet only one cake and I eat the whole thing then somebody must be starving to death around here if everybody ate cake at the same rate that I do, we would need three more chocolate velvet and dirt. We have eaten too much of this earth mouth, smothered in cream, making ourselves sick from the icing. In the past 30 years of birthday celebrations, we have eaten one third of this cake already, taken one third of her forests already. Look at my pudgy fingers and my rolling belly I am Augustus Gloop at the party yes somebody must be starving to death around here let me break it down for us if there are ten trees tall on day one and only two are left standing on day four we shall never make it through this week I have taken much more than my fair share but forget about the maths what about the people what about Rosalie from Mozambique? Her crops are washed away by the floods that only ever came once in a lifetime, yet now they rush the shore every other day. Or what about Manju, northern India? She has never heard of the phrase climate change. She just knows the years of failed rains. She has never seen weather like this before. Every day she struggles to keep her family from starving as we forget the mother working tirelessly in her fields. We forget the father digging trenches around gardens. We forget the son digging holes to mine coal. We forget the daughter waist deep in flooded waters. We forget because it is easier this way the bliss of ignorance the kiss of indifference yet from the bottom of this ocean to the tips of the tops of the peaks that touch the sky to the cities and the factories on the surface of her skin to the smoke and the smut that we cover her in we forget that we have only ever had one planet, one ocean, one sky, one people, one life for one time that we can make this right Happy birthday world let us blow out the candles of our indifference. And this year, I promise to eat less cake. You might have heard a surfer describe a sense of connection to the ocean as they sit out the back of a set of waves, or someone might have said to you, I don't need to go to church. All I need is a walk in the bush or watching a sunset to feel close to God or some sort of connection to their spirit. 
So it's not unusual for us to consider some sort of deep, even sacred, organic connection between ourselves and the earth from which we are formed and which sustains us. And just think, thousands of years ago that connection would have been even stronger. It would have been a far more common understanding, not just in the realm of surfers or hippies with crystals. Connection to the earth, its rhythms and its seasons, is how the ancient peoples experienced life. They lived in much greater harmony with the created world. They had to. They were vulnerable to its whims. As a result of this, they held, as philosopher Sam Keane suggests, a belief in the continuity of all life that resulted in a feeling of intimate belonging, of being at home in the world, even as it remained mysterious, sacred, and unpredictable. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That they are held within something greater. They know and can't help but know that they are part of this world and a sacred part of it. Today, as we crowd into urban centres, even put roofs over our sporting fields, that connection is largely broken. We fail to share this sense of intimacy and vulnerability to our environment. If the weather gets a bit hot, we turn the aircon down a degree or two. We have the food we want when we want it, without any regard for where it came from and what season it is. We now live with a greater disconnection with the land and how we are sustained by it. Despite our greater knowledge of how the natural world works and the science behind it, how our bodies absorb its nutrients and inhale its oxygen, despite our greater knowledge, we log forests excessively, we overfish seas, we pollute oceans. Sam Keane writes that by the 19th century, Western man had come to stake his claim to dignity not on being part of the natural order, the cosmos, but on being above the natural order, being related to nature, not as a brother, but as Lord, not in the spirit of cooperation and thankfulness, but in the spirit of domination. He goes on to say, at some point we are going to have to admit that we have been blind to what we have done and are continuing to do. If we do not begin to function in harmony with all creation, I am afraid Homo sapiens will have a short history on this earth. So there are many practical reasons to consider carefully our use and abuse of our environment. As Joel McCarrow points out, we only have one world, we can't afford to stuff it up. But what if one of the other reasons is this question? What if humanity's drive to progress and industrialization has distanced us? has estranged us from that which most clearly sustains us? What if we have spiritually impoverished ourselves by closing our ears and eyes to the closest and most sacred connection available to us, our sustainer earth? Our next guest is a man who has spent the last decade in particular trying to understand this connection and using the language of his faith to put words around it. Fred Plummer is the head of the progressive Christianity movement in the US. The website of the movement describes it as an open, intelligent and collaborative approach to the Christian tradition and the life and teachings of Jesus that creates a pathway into an authentic and relevant religious experience. Fred's career has been in building management, real estate and the restaurant business before becoming a minister. He now lives on an island in the Pacific Northwest, 
where he's been on a journey of discovering the connections between his spiritual life and practice and the wild nature he has surrounded himself with. Um, let's get going. One of the questions we've been opening with for people is uh, a question that's just, what's the point of the Christian story for you personally? Why stay within the Christian framework? I guess the honest answer is I have been wrestling with this man, Jesus, for 40 years. And I went through three stages, but eventually I ended up really liking him and respecting him as a person. And at the same time, I realized that he was just a person, a very profound person, a very uh, good teacher. But it was then that I was able to assimilate him being Jesus with all the other great teachers. Um, and quite frankly, I, I, I gained that. My wife is a Buddhist or practices Buddhism, and I've gone to week-long Buddhist retreats with her. And it was actually listening to a Buddhist talk about forgiveness that allowed me to come back, reread everything, and went, oh my goodness, you know, that's this is really profound. And, you know, I, I, I hear people say, wow, um, so which one do you follow? And how do you know which one's true? <laughs> and um, I realized that if there were four or five people, profound people that made these differences that all agreed on the basic things, that seemed to be to be more positive, more of a wonderful epiphany, really, for me, um, than struggling with, well, do I believe this or about him, or do I believe this about him or her or whatever. But this is where I am, and I'm very comfortable saying that I'm a follower of Jesus. Fred, how has your connection to the environment become a part of your theology, your understanding of faith? It's impossible. Anybody, anybody that takes the the, the Bible seriously and says, well, Jesus didn't say anything about the environment, um, is an idiot. Um, you know, I don't know what the population was then, but it was, what, 10% of what it is now or something less? I, I, I have no idea. It, it was very, very small, relatively speaking. And, you know, they walked everywhere. <laughs> they didn't drive cars. They rode on. So we're not going to find anything about Jesus speaking about the environment. What you have to do is project who would Jesus be today. You know, he, he, there's no question he would be um, trying to find heaven on earth. I, I, I don't, I'm 74 years old. It, it isn't going to affect me very much. I may have another 20 really hot summers, but it's people like you it's people like my grandchildren. It's people like my kids for whatever time they have left. If we don't take real strong steps, we're, we're toast. 
and I'm a Christian. I'm a I'm a I'm an activist, um, and certainly that affects my understanding of the environment and, and what's happening. So, what does it look like on the ground to take seriously what you're saying? Is it a matter of separating our rubbish from our recycling? Um, well, I think one of the things that we can do um, almost as a strategy is to remind people in our churches, in our small settings, of God's great love for this earth. Thomas Berry, who was a Catholic priest and, and eco-theologian, he said, we are talking only to ourselves. We are not talking to the rivers. We are not listening to the wind and the stars. We have broken the great conversation. By breaking that conversation, we've shattered the universe. All the disasters that are happening now are a consequence of that spiritual autism. Can you comment on that disconnection from our environment? It, it, it is a, um, a real um, frustration for me that more people are not getting that. But more people are getting that in the millennials. It's, it's a huge part of their movement. They really are taking it seriously. And I don't think we're, we've seen the full impact of, of where they are going yet. I just hope they don't get discouraged and give up. I hope they keep that enthusiasm. But if we've experienced a, a rupture in our relationship with the earth, what will foster that connection and, and that reconnection? I think that um, that rupture is probably not going to be connected with my age group in general. There are lots of, of um, exceptions to that, some really profound exceptions to that. I mean, Thomas Berry was not a millennial. I, I think that unless people go and listen to a stream, go and look at the birds, unless they really do some of those things and connect with that, I don't think they're going to get it. I'm very, I'm again feeling very positive about the younger generation. I think they got it. And if we can hand them the reins before we destroy the earth, I think things will change very quickly. But we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. I'm Faith. And I'm Far. Eating pigs like peace. made of love. I know God cares about the environment because he made the trees and the bees and the plants and the leopards and the dogs and the cats and the insects. But I don't think Jesus said anything about the environment. So how would we know what to do? Well, Jesus lived in a time when there were just a few people. And um, they didn't have the same kinds of world that we have today. They didn't have coal that they burned or they didn't drive cars. 
So he wasn't concerned about that because he was concerned about other things. Um, if Jesus were alive today, I'm sure he would be very concerned about the environment. And many things that he says about the earth are indications that he thinks it's a beautiful place. And don't you think we should try and take care of it too? There, a whale sewing the hem of the ocean. Above, an eagle needling through patchwork clouds. Here, I feel like a dropped stitch. But this whale, this eagle, this huge fluke, this soaring moment, are embroidered on my heart. I am a part of nature's wonder. So today's guest is Michael Dowd. He is best described as an eco-theologian, or in his own words, an evolutionary evangelist. And, to go with that, has a voice that sounds like an American Top 40 announcer. His book, Thank God for Evolution, was endorsed by six Nobel Prize-winning scientists, noted skeptics, and also by religious leaders across varying theological spectrums. Dowd has tremendous passion for proclaiming a pro-science message about our sacred responsibility to the earth for future generations. Michael Dowd? Welcome to Beyondering. It's great you're able to join us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing an early morning. We look forward to waking you up and yes. you going for the day. <laughs> yeah. so, but I've got my coffee. I'm good. in good shape. Good. Good. And yes. you're out of your pajamas. You've done well. Yes, exactly. Well, actually, you know, I threw on the shirt. I've got half my pajamas here. <laughs> Brilliant. We, we often make jokes about our uh, about our Skype interviews, just of what, what's going on out of camera, and now we finally know. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes us feel so much better because we're not wearing pants. No. So <laughs> <really> <laughs> A question we like to start, we'd like to ask our guests, is the Christian tradition, the Christian framework, the Christian story, what meaning does it have for you? What's its value for you? What's its meaning? What's its value? Well, as a sort of primary archetype for my life, frankly, um, I grew up within the Christian context. I was the oldest child in a Roman Catholic family, and I guess I was expected to be a priest. And um, But in my teenage years, I realized I had too much testosterone to go the celibate path. That, that wasn't what I was going to do. But I found myself... Um, really, really interested in the smells and the bells and the ritual and the and the, the stories that touched my heart and scared me. And I mean, just the whole narrative framework for the Christian tradition was just awesome because, you know, the churches are awesome and these sort of big, powerful figures and all. And but then in my mid-teenage years, I started, you know, really experimenting with and exploring uh, drugs and alcohol and sexuality and stuff and found uh, a, a number of things problematic, challenging, where I felt like, I mean, I now use 
sort of what God's been revealing through science, ways of talking about it through evolutionary psychology and brain science. But at the time, I didn't have those tools. And so it was just my sinful nature. And um, and so then in my, I think it was 19, I had a, a born-again experience and committed myself to Christ. And, and uh, it was a very profound uh, thing. And then I read the Bible straight through twice. And so at that point, I really became quite a literalist. I interpreted the Bible literally. Uh, I believed that Jesus was coming back again in the near future, next couple decades, uh, that we would probably never see the year 2000. And so I uh, hitchhiked around Israel and Ireland and Belgium and France and got out of the army in 1981, uh, the U.S. Army. I was stationed in Berlin, Germany. And I went to Evangel College, which is affiliated with the Assemblies of God. And I ended up uh, quickly being confronted there because I went into a biology class and the teacher held up the textbook that we were going to use in biology class. And I saw that that was the very same textbook we had used four years earlier at the University of Miami, Florida, before I dropped out because I was partying every day, basically, and then joined the Army. And um, and it, it taught evolution. I knew it taught evolution. And I freaked. I literally walked, you know, picked up my books, walked out of class, slammed the door, and went to the registrar's office and withdraw, withdrew from the course. In fact, I told my roommate, Satan obviously has a foothold in the school. It was the only way I could make sense of how they could be teaching evolution at an evangelical, you know, Bible-centered college. Well, I went on to discover, at least here in America, that most evangelical colleges teach evolution. They just teach it in a God-honoring way or a sacred way. But I wasn't aware of that at the time. So I ended up actually staying there. I, I, I double majored in biblical studies and philosophy. And the Christian story then, I started interpreting some of it less, less literally. Um, some, of the, some of the miracle stories, some of the, 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 what I would now see as mythic elements that are, that are true in a symbolic sense, in a, in a mythic sense, in a way that, that helps me feel who I am and my relationship to reality. And so for me, uh, the second coming of Christ, for example, interpreted from a... Uh, uh, sacred realism perspective is not about a six foot, 180 pound man coming down magically on the clouds to rescue our butts from the, the challenge that we've created for ourselves. But it's a return of the kind of awareness that God is here, right here, right now, incarnate in time and, and matter. And we need to serve the future. We need to be saviors of the future. We need to be Christians in the true sense of that term. Um, it's not about waiting for something magical to happen from on high. So for me, the Christ story, and I have some, I have some parts of the Bible memorized. I, I can tell the passion resurrection narrative, Mark 14, 15, 16. I've done that. I, I don a monk's robe and I become Mike the monk, you know, and I tell the passion resurrection story out of Mark. I also have the, the Joseph narrative in Genesis memorized. And so biblical storytelling has been really, uh, soul nourishing for me over the years. So I actually find, I don't know a short answer, uh, as you can tell, I'm kind of going on and on, but basically the, the Christian story provides for me the mythic framework for my life and my own sense of ministry, my own sense of calling, my own sense of what am I, how can I make the biggest difference for the planet, for God, for reality in my lifetime, given my gifts and given my limitations. And I find that the Christ story, the Christian narrative um, in, inspires me and empowers me to do that. You're someone who was initially anti-science and it's almost as though now you stand within science and look back at your faith. Can you talk to us now about how you see the relationship between science and, and faith and religion? Sure. Well, at the very start, I have to say there's many different ways. Here's another example of what, that words create worlds and that words mean different things. What does somebody mean by the word faith? 
I used to think of faith as basically synonymous with beliefs. So faith and beliefs had been collapsed. And so that to have faith meant interpreting, uh, uh, having certain beliefs about things in the past, certain miracle stories, for example, or certain things being literally true or whatever. And, um, and I no longer interpret faith that way at all. Uh, I interpret faith as synonymous with trust, that to have an open-hearted, open-handed trust toward reality, trusting that, that I may not know how this situation right now or these circumstances can be a blessing to my life, but I can trust that they can be if I choose to interpret through those lenses. So for me, faith isn't about having certain beliefs that if I have those beliefs, I got some special card key that gets me to the special place when I die that all the rest of those sorry suckers don't have. I don't interpret faith that way. For me, faith is about having uh, the trust, trusting reality, faith in God, trusting reality, trusting time, accepting what is, celebrating what's so, cherishing what's real. Those are all synonyms for me. And so, um, yeah, I've gone from thinking of faith as mostly in unnatural terms. An unnatural father who gave birth to an unnatural son, who sent his unnatural son to the earth in an unnatural way, who, uh, you know, uh, lived an unnatural life, did all kinds of unnatural deeds, you know, supernatural miracles. Uh, he then died naturally. And then um, uh, in order to redeem us from an unnatural curse brought about by an unnaturally talking snake. And then he, after 40 days of unnatural appearances to some of his followers, he then unnaturally zoomed off to heaven to go back to his unnatural father to sit on an unnatural throne and to unnaturally judge the living and the dead. And if I believe in all those unnatural things, I and my fellow believers get to go to an unnaturally boring place for an unnaturally long period of time while everybody else suffers an unnatural, torturous hell forever. Where can I sign and, up? This sounds amazing. <laughs> Where do I get one of those but, cards but, but, you were talking but, but about? That, <laughs> but that's, that's the way I interpreted my faith at that time. And now I interpret not only God and, and, and revelation and my faith, in, I, I don't interpret it in unnatural ways at all. I'm a Christian naturalist. I don't, I don't have any unnatural beliefs any longer. I interpret it as undeniably real. You know, understanding God as a person outside reality is unnatural. Understanding God as a personification that is giving giving uh, a personal a personal relationship to reality. Reality is real whether you believe in it or not. In fact, one of my favorite um, <laughs> definitions when sometimes uh, when I speak uh, on reality and God and this sort of thing, uh, I'll usually get a young man. He's often a man. And it's often in the, in his twenties. Sort of a philosophy type, and he sort of challenges me, like, "Well, well, what do you mean by reality?" And um, I, I like to quote Philip K. Dick. He says, "Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away." So, for me, having a personal, intimate, you know, I thou relationship to reality is really the essence of what it means to live in God, in Christ. Because for me, there is one path to God, and whether I speak of that path as Christ. Or whether I speak of that path as integrity incarnate, which for me, Christ is integrity incarnate. It's the only path. If you think you can live in right relationship to reality and sidestep the path of integrity, that is the path of living in right, the practices of living in right relationship to reality, you're kidding yourself. And so I now experience my faith and my faith tradition and all the elements of my faith in, 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 in the Bible, for example, uh, and in the doctrines and creeds and all that sort of thing as I interpret them in an undeniably real way rather than an unnatural otherworldly way. And that shift 
makes all the difference because I think one of the main reasons we're in the mess we are planetary-wise right now, I mean, why are millions of good people betraying the future? Why are tens of millions of good people who, who you know, go to church every Sunday and send their kids to the best schools possible, why are we all contributing in this economic system, this global system that defines um, progress by how fast we can take nature and turn it into pollution? It, it defines the good. It defines growth by, you know, how rapidly a few can benefit and the masses can be impoverished and making making it almost inevitable for all of us to harm the, for, the, the, the future so that the soil is getting degraded every decade. The forests we're losing every decade. The car, we're putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every decade than has happened in centuries, millions of years in some cases. Um, we're now at the place, 400 parts per million of, of carbon dioxide. The last time that the Earth had that level of, of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, we had alligators and crocodiles up in the Arctic in, in, in North America. And so we're looking at these how did we get to this place? Well, I think having otherworldly, unnatural interpretations of our faith and thinking that God's best guidance is frozen in time in the distant past, and even when we think of God, we think of God in otherworldly ways, I think that's contributed to it. It's allowed an economic system to develop that it can only be described, and I, I'm going to use a word that some of your listeners may balk at, but as demonic. I mean, if the word demonic has any word, any meaning in a modern context, a modern, postmodern context, it's got to include systems that make it easier or inevitable for, for billions of people to betray the future. I'd love to speak to you or get you to speak to us about evolution. You uh, wrote a, a book called Thank God for Evolution. And one of the quotes I love was, studying evolution is like following cosmic breadcrumbs back to God. Dinosaur bones and prehistoric artifacts are here to teach us faith, not test it. Can you talk to us about what evolution means for you, and particularly from that faith perspective? Yeah, amen. Thanks for the question. I'd love to. Um, well, let me remind uh, listeners that I said at the very beginning, which is I was originally threatened by evolution. I believed that evolution was of the devil and all the evils of the world could be attributed to Darwin. And, uh, and I believe that not for a long period of time. As a Catholic, that wasn't my worldview. I sort of, most Catholics accept evolution. The last several popes have publicly embraced evolution, but they do it again in a, th in a theistic or God-honoring kind of way. Um, but the period where I was a fundamentalist evangelical, I mean, I still consider myself an evangelical, but an evolutionary evangelical or a, an evangelical naturalist. Um, uh, but there were several years that I vehemently opposed evolution and was threatened by it. And part of that was because I didn't, I wasn't given the eyes to see it in a sacred or meaningful or inspiring or soul nourishing kind of way. You know, uh, when I speak of evolution, I'm not meaning merely biological evolution. What I mean is what's sometimes called big history. That is, it's the history of everyone and everything. It's physical evolution, biological evolution, and cultural evolution as our first and only globally produced, evidence-based creation story. So God has been revealing now through a wide range of disciplines, uh, chemistry, biology, anthropology, physics, physics and, you know, astrophysics, and so on. And as I said before, evidence of all kinds this grand narrative that unites all people. We now know, we don't believe that we are related to all other human beings, that our skin color differences and various other differences are, are, are you know, just surface things. We don't believe that. We know that. We don't believe that we're genetically related to all other creatures. We know that. I mean, heck, 
50% of our DNA are identical with bananas. So, you know, uh, in, in fact, uh, one, of my, one of my favorite quotes from uh, a, a large pastor of a large church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Marlon Navinar, he said, you know, we've all heard some fundamentalist minded person tell me, don't, you know, don't tell me I'm related to monkeys. But now that we understand DNA and have cracked its code, we know that we're not just related to monkeys. We're related to zucchini, so let's get over it. (laughs) And so for me now, evolution is the story of how God has been creating, how reality has been unfolding for 13.82 billion years, and how I'm an expression of that. I'm I'm part of that. I'm an outgrowth of that, and so are you and so are the creatures. So it's given me a deep time, big family understanding. So what that, that's what this epic of evolution does. It gives us a big, deep time, big family understanding of ourselves, our world, our religious traditions, and our sense of destiny. That is our sense of where we can be used by God to make a difference in lives of people and in the lives of our community and the life of the future. We're asking these questions from a beginning point of standing within the Christian faith and if you like reaching out into into this other conversation that that has historically been kept separate what are you finding if we if we flip the conversation starting from the scientific viewpoint what is it teaching us about how spirituality and faith work that is a great question five years ago I spoke at the United Nations um, on a pro. I did a program at the United Nations. It was sponsored by the uh, uh, sort of uh, Peace and Justice Network or something like that. I forget the name of the the, the network, but the title of the program was called Re- um, "Evolution and the Global Integrity Crisis," and it was designed for a secular audience. I used some religious language, obviously. Uh, for example, I mentioned you know Christ and integrity. That, that any understanding of Christ that doesn't include being integrity incarnate is not Christ. Um, At any rate, so I did that program and it was very well received. And then um, Michael Shermer at Skeptic Magazine um, out in Southern California uh, uh, invited me to deliver that exact same program to uh, a group of 350 humanists and atheists at, at, uh, at, at Caltech. Uh, which I did, and they loved the program. In fact, it's available up online um, on YouTube. Um, and then uh, a week, at, exactly a week after that, I delivered that same program, Evolution and the Global Integrity Crisis, um, to Michael Beckwith's Agape Spiritual Life Center, which is this huge New Age mecca in the Los Angeles area. A month after that, I was at a Catholic church, and two weeks after that, I was at an evangelical church. Now, evangelicals, Catholics, atheists and new agers are radically different populations and the very same program worked in all those settings how is that possible well coming back to your question it i think it has to do with we start not with any particular metaphysical or theological perspective we start my program started with what's our best evidence about the nature of our outer reality our inner reality through evolutionary psychology and brain science, for example, what's God been revealing about our sinful nature through science, through evidence that can help us have a much more accurate understanding of why we're tempted by certain things, why we struggle with certain things. I mean, any young man, for example, and this is not just a male thing, sometimes women deal with this too, but it's more of a problem for men. Any young man, for example, who thinks that the reason he's occasionally, or maybe all the time, tempted by internet pornography is because his great, 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 great grandmother ate an apple 
is going to be clueless about how to live in integrity, how to live in Christ, no matter how much he may pray about it. And so, um, so I start with the evidence. I start with, here's what God's been revealing about our inner nature, our outer nature, our social nature, and our interpretive nature. And so because I start with the evidence, whether somebody is a Christian, a Buddhist, an atheist, an evangelical, whatever, there's nothing to argue with. I mean, this is clearly, you know, the vast majority, 97, 98% of the scientists of the world would agree with this. And then I go on then to interpret that in, in mythic or sacred or, or, or you know, uh, uh, inspiring ways. And I'll, and I'll often say when I speak to a mixed audience where I know that there's people from lots of different religious tradition and people of no religious tradition, I'll often say, now, if you're coming from this perspective, this is the language that you might interpret that. And, the, and, I get head nods from people. And then if you're coming from this position, so I show that there's a multiplicity of ways of interpreting what the evidence is giving us. And all those ways of interpreting it are legitimate, but they use different mythic language. They use different religious language because that's the nature of, of the various religions of the world. Although I um, suggest that to picture my great, 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 great grandmother eating an apple actually makes me feel less sexual than, uh, than <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> That's a good response, I love. I'm Beryl, and I'm a Rotarian. I've been going to my church for 70 years. Reading the Old Testament is worse than when I watch Game of Thrones. I don't mind the nudity. That's right, it's time for Beryl's Advocate. In my day, the only people who cared about the environment were known as tree-hugging hippies, earth worshippers, or park rangers. Is caring for the environment really an issue for Christians, or are we just confusing faith with a loony left agenda? Well, Beryl, the, the first thing I would say in response to that is, um, no, everybody has a stake in the future. If our Christian faith does not compel us to do everything we possibly can to repair the damage we have done and to measure progress and growth by how the natural world is doing, if we don't do that, our grandchildren will condemn us and reject our faith. If Christians don't take on as a sacred calling, doing what it takes to preserve the health of the air, the water, the soil, and the life upon which we depend. So that, I, I think it's not about being liberal. It's not about being a tree hugger. It's about being someone who is deeply committed with the heart of Christ to, um, to, 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 to love future generations as Christ has loved us, basically. We're talking about the environment, but all of a sudden we're talking about justice. We're talking about uh, responsibility. We're talking about much broader than just our connection to the natural world. What is that link between the environment and social justice? Well, the biggest link, we've got to step back and realize that you are using a word, we're using a word that means something very different than the ancients used. The word environment didn't exist even 600 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago. The word reality didn't exist two or 3,000 years ago. The word nature didn't exist two or 3,000 years ago. The environment is not our surroundings. The environment is our source. What we call the environment, the ancients called Yahweh, called God. As I said, the Hebrews had a personal I-thou relationship to what we call wind and breath. It wasn't just the wind. It wasn't just the breath. This was 
the Spirit of God. You didn't need to believe in the Spirit. <laughs> in fact, you know, if you're breathing, you're experiencing the Spirit. And the only time you stop experiencing the Spirit of God is when you die, the breath leaves you. So this word, even words like nature, even words like the environment, we think it's just an it, it's the environment. We don't think of it as the source of our life, the, the sustenance of our life and the end of our life. You know, from dust you come to dust you'll return. From the environment you come to the environment you'll return. And what nourishes and, and, and feeds us along the way is the environment. So even the language that we use promotes this anthropocentrism, this human-centeredness. It's just the environment. So the question, how does the environment relate to social justice issues, it's often you know, sort of paired as, you know, you're either pro-environment or pro-justice. No, nonsense. It's all one reality. We, we, for us to attend to the health and well-being of the body of life, one essential element of the body of life is other human beings. And so that's why this growing gap between the rich and the poor is not only unsustainable, it's evil. The idea that we wealthy people in wealthy nations can live at this super high standard of living that's so wasteful, so consumptive, while so much of the world struggles to merely have the basis of survival is evil. This idea that we can measure progress and growth and success by how fast we can take nature and turn it into pollution is evil. This idea that, that, that a few corporations and just a few, you know, the 1% or the 1% of the 1% can become really, really, really wealthy while so much of the world becomes more impoverished over time is evil. And we need to name this stuff as evil. So the social justice elements and the ecological or environmental issues are intricately linked, um, but we must put God first. We must put the well-being of life first. We've got 7.3 billion human beings on the planet. We are so far in overshoot. We are so far beyond the grace limits of this planet that there is a consequent reckoning coming. We are in what, what, I could, what could be called the age we're just beginning to experience the great reckoning. That is where we've been out of right relationship to reality, whether you use secular or religious names to talk about that, and where we're about to experience the consequences. And the consequences will be of biblical proportion. And it's not because some supernatural being is ticked off at us and, you know, going to punish us because we... No, it's because there are consequences when we're out of right relationship to reality. But I hope also this will be seen as the great homecoming the prodigal species coming home to God, coming home to the Father, coming home to reality. And, uh, it, and, and we have to attend to the issues of human, the fairness or unfairness of human relations. And that's where we get into the whole realm of social justice as well as ecological justice. One idea I'd like you to touch on briefly, though, is the idea of deep time eyes or sacred eyes. I've come across it in your material and I'm interested in, in what that means. Well, what I'm meaning by deep time eyes is um, a way of seeing, a way of, of perceiving reality that goes beyond the superficial surfaces. For example, I can look at uh, a ginkgo tree, for example, and I can see that ginkgo tree. Deep time eyes, that is taking what God's been revealing, what reality has been revealing through evidence about ginkgo trees, I know that that tree is hundreds of millions, that species is hundreds of millions of years old. It's one of the oldest trees. 
And so deep time eyes is taking the reality that has been revealed, what God reality has been revealing through evidence, and then allowing that to, to impact how I see the world. So when I see, for example, when you stop and think, how did the Apostle Paul think about the oceans or how did Moses or, or you know anybody in the past how did they think about how did that mountain get there how did that river get there how did that oceans get there how did the moon get there? you know what is the moon you know all the kinds of questions that we have about reality if if we think that divine revelation is merely sort of parroting how ancient people saw their world we are as i've said repeatedly in this in this interview we are blind and deaf to what god's been revealing through evidence about deep time over not just thousands of years as the you know all the people in biblical times they thought time only went back a few thousand years we now know we don't believe we know that time goes back billions of years and we'll go forward billions of years. And, you know, I mean, and so having deep time eyes is recognizing that time is expansive. And that's why I love to use the hundred year time scale. I call it the cosmic century timeline. This is the essence of, of deep time eyes for me is having the cosmic century. That is thinking in terms of if you, if you compress the history of, of everyone and everything, big history or the universe story into 100 years. So you've got some the beginning of, of creation, the beginning of the universe is 100 years ago. And right now is December 31st of the, of, you know, midnight of the 99th year, just going into the 100th year. At that time scale, at day two, all the hydrogen and helium were formed, other than the helium that's formed inside stars. Our solar system, the galaxies were forming over decades on this time scale. At age 67 on a 100-year time scale, our solar system was formed. To use religious language, God created our solar system at the age of 67 on this 100-year time scale. Um, 69, Earth cooled below the boiling point of water and it rained, and this is when the oceans formed, and there were a few icy comets that hit after that that added some water. At 71, we see the first bacteria both in the crust, deep underground, and also uh, on the surface, we see bacteria of all. So Earth comes alive. You could say God created life at the age of seven, when the universe was 71 years of age. At 73, this life starts feeding on the photons of the sun, so photosynthesis. And then that produces oxygen. So there was very little oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. So this oxygen builds, and by the, by 87 on this time scale, we see oxygen, so much oxygen builds up that it's a toxin. It starts destroying life. It's the first major pollution crisis. That's, the, that's at 87. And then I could go on, and I'm not going to go through the details of all the different, you know, life forms, because there are extinctions and, and continents move around, life comes on land, you know. And, but on this hundred year time scale, the first human, the first Homo, uh, uh, homo uh, erectus, or Homo, actually Homo habilis, using stone tools, the first human like creature, is December 25th of the 99th year. So interestingly enough, on Christmas Day of the 99th year, you got, you know, 99 years, the last week on Christmas Day is when God becomes human, that is reality is incarnate in human. I think it's pretty cool, personally. <laughs> um, and then December 29th, we have Homo erectus domesticating fire, okay? At three o'clock in the morning, on December 31st, is we see Neanderthals, Homo Neanderthalus, and Homo uh, 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 sapiens, in, uh, you know, take different lines. Now, we did find out through genetic testing that there was some interbreeding just in the last 30,000, 40,000 years. Um, but 
we start using symbolic language, words to create. I mean, how did people prior to symbolic words for like 96, 97% of human history, how did we think about God? We experienced God. We didn't use words to talk about God. So just in this time scale, this 100-year time scale, it's really only been since noon on December 31st of the 99th year that we've been using symbolic language. For 98% of human existence, we lived as hunter-gatherers and, and then early horticulturalists, which I call permaculture 1.0. And then only in the last eight to 10,000 years, we start seeing farming methods in agriculture, but even there it's done in a more sustainable way mostly. But then we start building cities and empires and, and, and uh, nation states. And we start occupying the land just really briefly. We're talking about 11, 11.30 PM on this 100 year time scale. And so we've been out of right relationship to reality for a little blip of time and when we look into the future, I'm not talking about just a few decades. I'm not just talking about a few hundred years. But when we look into the future, okay, on this time scale, the last minute is 250 years. So, or the last two minutes is 500 years. So if we look at the last two minutes on a hundred year time scale, the last 500 years. So when we stand from where we are now and look forward two minutes, what can we count on? When we look forward a week, or a year, a year, if we if we take a look at the 101 year timeline, the entire universe in 101 years, the next year is simply 140 million years. There will be 140 million years again. Now, humans most likely won't exist, will have gone extinct before then, there'll be an asteroid impact or whatever. So when we step back and look at this time scale and recognize that all of this is divine revelation, all of this is God doing this, we then have a way of seeing ourselves from a perspective that when I step back and I imagine that, you know, in another 100,000, 200,000, maybe 2 million years, whatever it is, whatever asteroid or supervolcano takes us out, right? And then the next self-expressive intelligence will probably be raccoons, right? You know, because they've got the manual dexterity, you know, and then the descendants maybe of the crows after that, you know, who knows? But when I step back, I see human history as this period where we lived in the garden, as it were. We lived in right relationship to nature and with God. We heard God's voice in and through nature, and we honored grace limits. We honored God saying, don't eat that. Okay, to eat all this stuff, don't eat that. Okay, that's how I interpret that story. And then we dishonored nature's limits. We dishonored God's limits. We, we, we thought that limitlessness, I see limitlessness, the idea that limitlessness is the original sin. And now we're repenting. We're coming back home to God. And I believe that the next 98% of human existence will live back in the garden again. And we've got some purgatory to go through. We've got the next few thousand years are likely to be difficult, but it's also likely to be amazingly nourishing because we'll see local people living again locally, growing food locally, engaging with their neighbors locally. And we will see, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the far, far future, stepping back, this period where we thought that we could rape nature for our benefit, this human centeredness that caused us to create hell on earth will shift. And we will come back into this harmonious, life-giving, Christian relationship. So here's a quote from Gil Bailey that I just love. It, it helps Christians have deep time eyes. It was not those closest to the historical Jesus who first gave the gospel its geographical breadth and theological depth. It was Paul who had never known him. 
In addition to that, impressive achievements in biblical scholarship have in many ways brought our era closer to the constituent events of the Christian movement than were, say, the Gentile Christians of the second century. If the life and death of Jesus is historically central, then people living 100,000 years from now will be in a better position to appreciate that than we are. Furthermore, when they look back, they will surely think of us as early Christians, living as we do a scant two millennia from the mysterious events in question. They will be right, for the Christian tradition today is still in the elementary stages of working out for itself and for the world the implications of the gospel. There isn't the slightest doubt that the greatest and boldest creedal assertions are in the future, not the past. It may be only at rare moments that this flawed and unlikely thing that we call the church even remotely resembles something worthy of its calling. But it is nonetheless embarked on a great Christological adventure. Even against its own institutional resistances, it is continually finding deeper and more inspiring implications to the Jesus event. Michael Dowd, thank you for your time, but also your passion, your wisdom, and your challenge. It's been great uh, for everything you've offered us today. So thank you so much for coming beyondering with us. Well, Matt, thank you. And Lucas, I just I so appreciate the work that you're doing, uh, the interacting with, with people, stretching your community. And I just, I honor the both of you and, and this podcast work and uh, your other work in the world. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blessing now to me to have this sort of relationship. And I hope this is not the, uh, the, not the last time that we'll interact. Thank you. find out more about Fred Plummer or Michael Dowd, go to our website. There's information and links at beyondring.com.au. You'll also find those who Michael Dowd would further point us towards en route to, to further truth, as well as shortly, coming soon, full-length episodes of all our guests. And don't just listen to the podcast. Engage. Join in the conversation with us on Facebook. So next week, our guests include Carolyn Francis, who's a really refreshing Aussie voice and minister in one of the oldest churches in the heart of Melbourne. And I came to that place, I suppose, as a pastor, because there were people who were loved members of the congregations I had served in, who were gay and in same-sex relationships. I could see the value in them. I could see the authenticity of their Christian faith and I couldn't stand by and hear them spoken about in the manner in which they were being referred to in the public conversation. And back off the bench, the well-appreciated Dave Andrews returns. I think somehow I was brought up with the idea that, that we're good and they're bad. But when I went to India, I encountered the goodness in people there in a way that was undeniable. And finally, back for a pinch hit, Bishop Spong. It's awful hard to hate somebody you really know and care about. And as I mentioned earlier, this, this lesbian couple we had in the diocese that adopted 20 children, all of whom were unadoptable in most senses. People came to admire that. They're going to be helping us explore various aspects of inclusivity. So thanks for listening. Join us again as we continue Beyond Earth.
Beyondering is supported by the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria. Join the network, find resources and learn about upcoming events at pcnvictoria.blogspot.com.au and Common Dreams, an alliance of religious progressives in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific. Visit commondreams.org.au to learn more about the next Common Dreams conference to be held in Brisbane, September 16th to 19th, 2016. Edited by Shaz Mullins and technologically massaged by Adam, take me to the ball. <laughs>